Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the George Boo Show. I'm your host, George Boo. Today, we have two exciting co-hosts joining us to be discussing various topics. As usual, your co-host Soham uh, is here. What's up, Soham? Hi, guys. Nice to talk to everybody again. And you know Scott Thomason from Choir, who's in our episode 16. I'm great to have Scott today on the panel as well. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Hey, George. This one, awesome to be back. Thank you for the invite. Awesome. So yeah, Scott, I know it's been a couple weeks since we chatted about Choir. It was very exciting a couple weeks back. Can you give us a little more updates about what's been going on with Choir? I'm sure our audience all want to know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been fantastic, right? I mean, we hit some really strange macroeconomic times, but you know, Choir is sitting here on top of what everyone is focused on, right? Sustainable energy and how we can use less of it to accommodate more of us. And so, not only have we added our、uh, Canadian team, George, as you know, and expanding up there, we've actually had a lot of strategic interest for embedding the technology and API into things that. Fit into the home, from the solar to the circuit panel to battery, PV, and EV, right down to even things that will drive us to then kind of work in the industrial space and hopefully get to that 15 to 20 percent savings across the board. So it's been really exciting. The interest from people wanting to work with us, investors, and so forth is just really something I didn't expect for again, given the macroeconomic times. Yeah, I do know the team has made a few great BD developments. So can you give us a little more peek into who you guys been talking to and how what's the feedback so far? Yeah, no. One of the best is with WattTime.org, which I think is becoming a standard for everyone to know. Right? You can get historical data based on power and energy, but you can really look seventy-two plus hours out to see, for example, where LA is going to have some issues, where we have blackouts, brownouts, where it'll be difficult to supply energy and. That's most important to us because then we can predict load balancing for clients. Right? Are you going to move vehicle to grid, vehicle to car, vehicle to etc.? And so that's one of the best. I, I love that group. They're non for profit, so you know, fantastic to have that mission aligned. But that also brings us then to the vehicle to grid, and we're really excited about two. Right? Formata Energy got introduced to them from. Investment over、uh, in Japan with the team there, and with Tepco, and they're really doing great on VehicleXX. So integrating with them is going to be key. We're going to see a lot of expansion there. We have opportunities that will relate to some large names within the electric vehicle side, and then also a smart car, smartcar.com. They have the APIs that relate to all of our cars, and so integrating in with them, I mean, it's key. It's pretty fantastic. I think the car number one thing in the future is probably not transport. Right, it's probably a moving battery, and it can go to our grid for everything we need. Exciting space. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know Soham, you also do a lot of researching ESG in your work, right? I think you told me.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, like for me, the way we kind of do it. So, Scott, I'm not sure how much you know, but like I work in a、uh, management consulting at、uh, one of the big four. And when my team finds transformation, one of the big things we're trying to do is just for a lot of companies that kind of want to shift like their reporting towards more like ESG kind of stuff. We kind of like.、Mm-hmm. Help implement and like build out the system in terms of oh how you should do it like the whole project plan for it and everything like that. And sometimes we kind of go all the way and help them with the actual implementation as well. So the ESG space definitely something I think is going to be one of the biggest key drivers for a lot of companies in the future. And something like Choir seems very exciting because I believe from listening to your podcast, Scott, that's something you guys focus on as well, right? That ESG reporting part to be able to be audited. It is the idea behind it. Some was that. If we were understanding the data that drove energy use, emissions, and other things related to ESG, 
that data then on a daily basis can really give an output for what typically people just report at the end of the year. So why not be able to log in? We know the data is auditable. It's not something that we've traditionally seen. I think, as you know, a lot of ESG can be kind of manipulated over the past few years, Mm -hmm. right? To kind of meet what somebody wants to put out. In this way, it's kind of traceable. They got to show it, right? And if we take, for example, a grocery store, you know, they're reporting from one store and then one even five miles away is drastically different, right? Based on where the goods come from on the shelves, how people get to it, you know, if you ride a subway versus drive. So those things we want to take into account and have ESG reporting at that granular level. And I, I think it has to be a startup to work with the big four, like you're saying, because we're kind of agnostic. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think you hit a kind of a key point was just you really do have to be able to get to that granular level because or else a lot of companies kind of outsource their guilt to say, you know, just say that, oh, like, oh, we ourselves aren't doing anything, but more like the raw materials are coming from and things like that. That probably isn't like where ESG is sustainable, basically, right? So yeah. I think that's like a really good point. It is. Thanks, man. That's one of the missions of Choir to kind of be that third party validated tool that like I said, you know, on every Friday, XYZ company can say, hey, we did a great job this week, or we kind of didn't. <laughs> That's awesome, yeah. I'm always surprised there's no one's actually doing that. It seems like a super huge problem needs to be resolved by all the big companies and all the buildings in the world. Even on a residential level, I feel like, you know, for example, like Sohan and I, we probably want to know how much we're spending on our extra bills and our water bills and all that. Like, I usually just take a look at it and then just like leave it behind. 90% I don't even look at it. So, <laughs> no one does. Yeah, no one does. So, but I feel like if we have insights over what's the most expensive stuff leaving on during the night, I feel like we should probably be able to control that more. So I feel like it's a huge use case. But yeah, it's great updates, Scott. So today we have a few topics. I really want to run with you, gentlemen. I think the first topic is the iPhone 14 Pro shortage. I'm not, not sure, Sky, if you or anyone you know trying to buy the iPhone 14 Pro, I definitely have a few friends wants to buy it. But apparently, you know, COVID related factory troubles have resulted in a shortage of the new high end iPhones. So in order to buy one, I think right now we're at the end of November. And I think to buy one, you actually have to wait until a lot after the Christmas to be able to get one. So uh, Scott, from your experience, like what's your take on this shortage? It seems to be always whether or not it's pandemic or other related, right? I mean, I think iPhone likes to pull a few punches on that. But I gotta guess it's still related to the semiconductor issues, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sand is a problem and from construction on windows to phones, I think it's hitting everyone, right? Just for that demand. But amazing that they're not going to have it ready for Christmas. That's a big tough break. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, hum. And like, uh, George, I'm actually one of the few friends that are trying to find an iPhone 14 Pro. So if you know a way, let me know. But I just think ever since COVID's happened, like, and the supply chains got disrupted, like, everything's had that downstream effect. Like I remember like the PS5, I think to this day, you still probably can't buy it in stores because like uh, Scott mentioned, like, yeah, those semiconductor shortage is becoming really important. That's one of the biggest uh, key components for an iPhone too, right? So I just think in general, like the electronic space, like this, the, this whole shortage has been the biggest driver for the supply chain. And like, yeah, people are saying it's COVID. Like I know like the factory shutdowns, things like that. But I think a lot of it still is stemming from just, there isn't enough for those raw materials. Yeah. And I think the fact that those phones are primarily manufactured, I'm assuming China, do you guys think that also impacted a few things? Because of the COVID restrictions and also like the shipping costs increasing. So um, do you think that might result in those delays? Yeah, I think just um, like I know like China is very stringent when it comes to like the actual like, COVID rules itself. So that definitely was a key one. But I didn't know that the shipping cost itself got increased. 
So that's pretty surprising for me. I think there's recently there was a protest near one of the big factories that manufactures iPhone. So there's like a worker and company dispute. So I'm assuming that has contributed a lot into what's been going on as well. But yeah, I'm just saying like, you know, we're about a couple weeks from Christmas and it's crazy. We cannot even get an iPhone Pro. So that's an amazing topic. Another topic, you know, kind of gets repetitive over the past two podcasts. But I think, you know, this year has been such a trend. We are on November 30th of this today's episode. Um, and while the few other waves of layoffs has been announced. So, you know, have Apply Board announced layoffs. DoorDash lays off 1,250 employees today to rein in the operating expenses. And I'm sure Stripe, I heard Stripe and a few other Bay Area companies are also laying off. Um, Scott, I, I mean, you've been working in tech for many, many years. Like, what's 2022 been like mm-hmm. for those friends of yours? What's your experience like? Well, why have you heard? It's been tough. Yeah. So 20, 23 years in this. And I think generally the 80-20 rule has always one this time of year, right? And you get rid of that bottom 20. Seems like they're getting rid of a lot more on it. It's tough. I think a lot of people are becoming redundant, right? And there's two good things about it. One, it opens up for people like Choir to get some really awesome talent that you know ha- probably haven't been innovating as much in big corporate America as they'd like to. So that's really awesome. And two, I think it's really a great correction in my mind that we're coming upon. And I mentioned it to you before. I think that Prices and inflation needed to be adjusted, but so did companies, their valuations and their people. You know, Twitter's a great example. Judging from it, I have to agree with Elon some that they need 7,500 employees. It does seem odd, right? Do some companies need 120,000? Uh, I highly doubt it. So I think they messed up and I hope their management becomes more lean to mean, to be honest. And, and we wouldn't go through these cycles. Um, you know, you, you constantly try to hire A and B plus plus players, you're going to be okay. But, uh, it's a lot. I think we're in for quite a next few quarters. And Scott, is that a good news for startups? Because startups themselves have also been laying off in addition to big tech like Meta and Microsoft and Amazon. Yeah. Uh, do you think startups actually benefit from those layoffs or do you think people actually want to find like a safe harbor? Although now it's like hard to find. No, uh, it's hard to find. Harbors? Not sure where that exists anymore unless you kind of go outside certain areas of ours, right? But, you know, I personally, again, my fifth startup, I think they're very painful, (laughs) but they're worth it. So, you know, a startup needs to start looking at when it's doing a round raise. I used to say 12 months or so would be okay, and you can go for another round. I think it's 18 to 36 now to go get don't overhire. But overcompensate too. There's no reason a startup can't pay uh, what is warranted for talent because you get what you pay for at the end of the day. So I think there's no company anymore that's going to be safe no longer 30, 40 years and get a pension. It just isn't the way of the world. Wow. Okay. And Scott, I think you had experience at Intel, right? Yeah. A couple of decades back. And is it true that, you know, like Soham and I were all like, you know, our early 20s, so we do not know. <laughs> but when you were working at Intel, was Intel one of the largest technology companies in the world? At that point, yes. In the 90s, which states me, unfortunately. But were you born? No. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, Intel had a philosophy, right? Um, it was interesting to enter at a time Andy Grove was there, right? The paranoid, when the paranoid survive type attitude, constructive criticism. But, you know, even then you would go through your reviews at the end of the year and you'd really have to, if you had a team of 20, a lot of times you would have to understand what bottom three, because there's always a bottom three. It's tough to decide, but there is. And that kind of harshness kind of worked back then 
I don't want to comment that maybe things changed as we got into the 2020s, but you know, work is work and people need to deliver. I guess you always have a job if you do, in my opinion. Yeah. And was like ping pong table, other kind of benefits. <laughs> was that a thing back then? So Intel, not necessarily, but definitely the first startup I did after that, you definitely had uh, ping pong tables, board meetings, research board meetings, right? Bloody Mary Mondays, you know, things <laughs> like that. But I believe I love that on startup culture, though. I hope that never goes away. I think it makes people very proud to work where they're at and feel yeah. like a work prison. I agree. And I feel like, Scott, like many people say today's talent problem is actually a competition problem. Everyone's bidding higher to get the best talent. And that somehow has inflated the actual wages of what tech workers' actual wage might be. Did you see that problem when you just started out in tech before all the 2020s? Was that an issue back then? I don't believe so. You know, when I graduated, even after my MBA, you know, you're lucky to be above mid five figures at that time. And that was even in the 90s. And I think what it did was drove people to be ambitious to work for equity, which was fairly new, I guess, in terms of the tech world then, but also get bonuses. So I think this leads to a good topic, George, because when you start with overcompensating people on base salaries, in my opinion, you're driving this inflation issue. You're driving a worth that kind of creates a settlement mentality versus reward. I mean, if someone wants to make half a million dollars, by all means, if they work hard, they're going to get it. Uh, even if you only have a base salary of, say, 100 or 150 or, or such. So I think that we need to get back to that because everyone starts making the same prices go up. So that amount of money buys you less anyways, right? I mean, pure economics. Um, I'm sure some would disagree with me on that, but I think reward is better. And I, I love the structure that tech had on bonus and structure and compensation, right? And Intel was great at it, right? You had your personal and then you had your company and then you had your profit sharing and you were able to actually partake in all of everyone's success. And that was an exciting thing. And I think that's also what startups can do. Yeah. So um, what do you think? I think Scott kind of hit one point that I really liked was that idea that profit sharing has become a less and less component of things. And it's become a lot more just, oh, like your base salary itself. Like a lot of people negotiate the higher base salary. People don't want a stock-based compensation. They get it. The moment it's vested, they sell out of it. Like you kind of like lost a lot of the people that had like that same alignment with the company itself, right? And that's where I think a lot of people just started, oh, like leaving firms, things like that. And it kind of started escalating a little bit. Yeah. And I think some people might think, oh, we're engineers or we're product managers. We're not like salespeople. Why do you, you like, quote unquote, humiliate us with the incentive structure? Like Sky, is that what you're seeing? Like, because most people think Absolutely. it probably is for salespeople. I mean, it's funny. I mean, everyone is interdependent, right? I mean, salespeople are, and I was one for a long time, right? They're the necessary evil. Probably some of the most hated people in the company because they're promising things <laughs> engineers can't deliver. But if sales happen, everyone wins. If sales don't happen, the company won't exist, you know, pure and simple. Mm -hmm. So I think getting engineers excited about working with the client and being tied to the success of individual sales teams is awesome. I mean, it really drives cohesion. And I guess that would also bring me then to, I don't know if you're going to bring it up, but remote versus office, got to have a hybrid. I think that that's really harming us somewhat for that feel of team and that feel of uh, all-in profitability. Yeah. I think that was something we were actually just like talking about last week was just, yeah, it feels like uh, even for me, like I work hybrid. The times when I'm in the office, like, yeah, I feel like a nice camaraderie with the team. But if you're working solely from home, you're kind of soloing yourself. Like it's just the work itself. That's all that really is keeping you at the company, right? 
Yeah. I think that really creates like a divide almost. If you think about it, like before pandemic, when I was at my last startup, it was World Cup time. And we would absolutely, when the teams were playing, you know, you take a break at one to three to go watch it together and head down. And there's nothing wrong. You can go back and work. You're not losing productivity. You're gaining a sense of worth with the team. And, you know, to not be able to do that is kind of sad. And I, I do like companies pushing back to get in there, right? And whether it's three days a week or four days a week is debatable and it depends on the teams. But from leading companies and looking at engineering teams, I just think they do so much better when they can ideate together. And it's hard over Zoom. Yeah. And I guess, Scott, you mentioned like about how, like, yeah, you think hybrid's better. What about in terms of compensation? Like you've had a few startups. What have you found has been like, whoever your best performers were like in terms of how you were compensating them, like uh, more towards the performance side, more towards, oh, base, but maybe like rewards or things like that. Yeah. So I think you have to adhere to on the base side, get a neutral party to tell you the range. Right. And I know a lot of states like California are moving to you now have to share it with everyone, which is great. That's, that's perfect. But I think you stay in that range with people, but I always approached it that what was their need and mm -hmm. what was hitting them the hardest. So generally what I saw was a lot of younger people, if you said, hey, do well, I'm going to give you that same amount of stock, you know, at the current uh, price of it, and they would take it. But, you know, people maybe in their 30s or 40s who have kids in school or moving into college, you know, bonus cash or other compensation is obviously more valuable because they got to de-risk. So I believe you should leave the structure up to individuals. They can't go outside of it from a base standpoint, but I'm I believe they can go to the moon and back on everything else, right? And that drive that incentive. But generally, if you leave it to individuals, they're going to be more happy anyways. And honestly, mm -hmm. they can't complain if something goes wrong. You know? That's cool. Yeah. And as Scott, I want to ask a follow-up question, which is like to hiring. This is not your first startup. So you are already an experienced operator. So when you want to hire someone, do you hire from your network or do you hire from Indeed or Glassdoor? I think I don't know the answer, but... Want to get your take? Yeah, I think as a startup, the one main thing you want is any hire that can get something done with pretty much immediacy, right? You don't want to be hunting, you don't want to be uh, teaching. You unfortunately can't be mentoring a ton either, right? Because you're just on the turn and go, turn and go, and you can kind of change that as you get into a much more predictable revenue stream. So I think you initially pluck from your network for sure, but as we found out. It's very interesting to meet people on social media that then you gauge from how they represent themselves. You get a lot. It's very interesting. And obviously, I've met quite a few in Twitter land, right, on that and LinkedIn. And you get a sense of how people represent themselves. That's all. And it comes in through. And But yeah, any team player who can just get something done, bring them on and let's go. Yeah, that's amazing. I just always find, yeah, in, in terms of hiring, I, I totally agree with you on that. In terms of like your experience at Intel, I just felt it's amazing to feel like the changing in the paradigms in tech. Like Intel used to be the largest tech company in the world. Mm -hmm. And now I'm assuming it's like either Apple, Google. And then back in the days, people probably think like Intel is going to be there forever mm -hmm. or something like that, right? So just surprising to see we might be entering another different paradigm with those new rounds of layoffs and the and this new economic change. We might be, but I will say this, we can't do anything without hardware and software. We can't do anything without CPUs and GPUs and processors. We can't turn on light switches without them. So whether you're Intel, NVIDIA, ARM, microchip, 
you know, uh, any of uh, the Asian guys. I mean, you need it. Look at what transpired with TSMC in Arizona, $12 billion plant. So I guess I'd say Intel is not going anywhere. It might become part of a commodity in terms of chips. But when we start looking at next generation quantum computing, which is coming, we're going to need these guys. And I would never count them out. Personally, I think some of the bigger guys like Apple are a little overvalued, to be honest. But that's my opinion. Because let's put it this way. How about I'll pose this question back to you and so on. If Intel disappeared, would it impact your life more or less than if, say, Apple disappeared? I think like just with like the way ARM processors are coming out now, like I know Apple has a new M1 chip and I'm kind of mainly on Mac as well. Mm -hmm. And like I have almost everything Apple. So I think it would still be Apple that would affect my life a little bit more just because even like Intel chips itself, I see like a Windows with their SQ2 chip and things like that. They're starting Mm -hmm. to kind of compete with Intel itself for performance. Yeah. I'm thinking Intel will probably cause more impact to me. Yeah. I, I mean, my MacBook, I'm using an old MacBook, so I still use an Intel chip. And I feel like maybe the chip in my TV, the chip in my like other hardware, the chip in like the smart fridges, even like the mm-hmm. robot cleaning the floor, those probably Intel chips, or I don't think there are that many companies that produce Actually, how about the one you're missing, George, and so I'm the most, the, mm-hmm. one of the biggest things Intel powers is the servers that run everything you're using. So we wouldn't right. have that. So your kind of app store on your phone might kind of go away. Your social media might go away. Your satellites might go away. So that's where I'm kind of saying, hey, there's some things there. But I'm look, I'm an Intel alumni, so I'm always going to be preaching. But people forget what powers the items they use every day versus the items they use. Yeah, that's a really good point. I forgot about all the infrastructure that Intel has like built just in the background, right? That's kind of makes everything we do possible. Yep. Yeah. Does that empower like AWS and Google Cloud, Scott? Um, that, I don't even know. Positive. A lot of it does. And I'm sure NVIDIA GPUs do as well. So, wow. you know, a mix between both of them is essential, honestly. But what I love is you're seeing now a plethora of new semiconductor startups coming up. And uh, it's pretty amazing to watch and see, right? Like photonics, you know, is going to hit back on Moore's Law. Right. And people thought maybe we hit the end of Moore's law, but now we haven't. And things like that uh, will be amazing to see. Photonics, I mean, that's insane. We're hitting Star Trek time, right? You guys will see some really cool stuff in your lifetime, I think, with that. So, you know, every yeah. time we think we have it all, we don't, right? It's kind of amazing to see. Yeah, that's crazy. Definitely interesting stories. I would love to definitely hear more from that very soon. So, yeah, I do want to switch a little bit topic into the big news of the week or the day. So today, the front page of Wall Street Journal has that the yields on longer term U.S. treasuries have fallen below further below to those on a short term bonds than any time in decades. And it is a sign that investor thinks that Federal Reserve is close to winning its inflation battle, regardless of the cost to economic activity. And also just to add a little bit, a scenario in which a short term yield exceeds a long term yield is known on Wall Street as an inverted yield curve. And it's often seen as a red flag that inflation is booming. So I'm going to go to you first. Uh, what do you think about this recent development that just happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe I'll take one step back, kind of just explain what that means, what like all the yields mean. Usually like a short-term yield would be like anything like from three months to one or two years. And what that means is basically if I'm some going to borrow something in these next two years, 
how much do I have to be compensated for me to be able to loan you out the money? And the same thing is for long-term yields, right? Like, which would be like five to 10 years. And for something like that, right? Like, oh, how much should I be uh, compensated to give you money? And in common sense, like uh, if I'm giving you money for a longer period of time, I don't know all the things that can happen there, right? Like 10 years is a lot longer. You can't project everything out. So usually that's riskier. So that means that you need a higher yield when you're going for something that's like five or 10 years. So in this situation, when people are saying that, hey, I would rather give you money and you can pay me back in the next 10 years, that's just kind of like saying that a lot of investors are indicating that they're scared in the near term if the people they're giving the money out to will be able to pay back or not. So these lenders now are thinking, hey, maybe I want to focus more on the long term. That kind of is like a big reason for a recession is just because it's showing like fear from like lenders, from investors that I don't really want to give my money out. They kind of want to like pocket it themselves. And if they give the money out, they just want to give whoever they give it to like a longer timetable to pay it back just so that like anything that happens in the short term doesn't really get affected for where they like uh, invest their money or who they lend it to. I see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I do remember the last time that the inverted uh, yield curve happened was near the August of 2019. I still remember reading that news back in the days and I was like, oh, the economy looks to be fine. Um, and then mm-hmm. obviously a couple of months after something nobody has you know, predicted happened. So Scott, what's your thoughts about the inverted yield curve? What's your experience with it? No, spot on with the definitions, right? I mean, it's so I've been through a few more, I guess, than you guys. It seems to be always <laughs> cyclical in nature. But uh, I'll say two things. One is it's always great in an inverted yield curve to start a company. It's a little hard early on because for the short term, some investor cash actually is smarter to put into bonds. It's a higher return. And mm-hmm. the feds have demonstrated that right now when you can get kind of that rate back. Shoving a few million into it is probably better than shoving a few million into a startup. But, you know, as you go down throughout the next five to 10 years, it becomes obvious that that really isn't something that returns ROI. So, you know, I think we have a blip on the screen of investors taking a pause to say, Hey, what should I do? They'll come back in the start of 2023. I guarantee with that trillion dollars of what we have out there. And start going strong. They're just going to be better at due diligence to do it. But on the inflation side, I mean, I personally hope the feds are nearing their completion of these uh, interest rate hikes. My concern on it more is for the consumer and that we avoid people unable to pay their credit cards and their home loans, which many have are variable, right? So uh, a big test, I think, for the U.S., is if in February, credit card delinquencies stay the same because we know that a lot of people are going to use them this holiday season and will they be able to pay those minimums or pay them down? I think that's going to be a big stress test and the feds are going to see how that goes. But my guess is it's going to slow quite a bit. And hopefully if I'm wrong, I'll come back on and eat some crow. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully Jerome kind of is listening to the market right now because it's interesting. You, depending on who you talk to, what inflation is hitting, right? It always hits uh, mid to lower, much harsher than anything else. And credit cards are the biggest sign of that. Right. Yeah, what's kind of crazy is, I don't know if you guys saw for like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, we hit another record this year from like last year. So even with all the inflation coming, like people are still spending, like consumer spending is at its highest point still. Uh, really Cyber surprising. Monday was what, $11 billion in yeah. the US? Something like, crazy like that. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing to me, given that there were some polls that had 70% of people saying they were going to spend less. That's why I'm concerned on the, on the credit card usage, to be honest. Yeah, right. 
I mean, I am seeing news that there are many like empty stores, like Best Buy's or some YouTube videos about those stores actually, and news articles about those stores being empty mm -hmm. and less like populated during Black Fridays. But then I guess do people just shop online instead? I'm not sure what happened. Yeah, I'll like tell you, the Thousand Oaks Mall, you cannot find a parking space. So <laughs> clearly, LA suburbs are doing just fine. But uh, we're an anomaly in California, anyways, right, George? So. Right, right, right. So, yep, that makes sense. So, um, but by the way, what do you think of the Fed going to be a little slowing down in terms of raising rates? I think today there's like, that was a big item as well that broke in yeah. the afternoon. I think Scott was alluding to this like a little bit earlier. Just about, yeah, I think it's important to start slowing down rates at one point because the people that are going to get hit the most if we keep continuing these hikes aren't going to be people that already were like downside protected. It's going to be people that have their mortgage and like have like credit card debt where they just tried spending a lot on Christmas, things like that, right? So. I think it's good news. And overall, in terms like for the overall economy, I think that stems that again, saying that, yeah, we think we're hitting like the peak of inflation, which I really do hope so. So overall, I do think that's like something good. Like it's one of the few good notes that's come out for the economy so far. Okay, great, great. Awesome. So yeah, I think next topic, I think today we want to keep it short. So I do want to go to a, an interesting topic, essentially regarding to Pipe. I'm not sure if uh, Sky, you've heard of the startup, pipe.com. So. No, Okay, uh, it's an alternative financing startup that has raised over $350 million over the past couple of years, and it's a relatively new startup. So I think last week, TechCrunch ran an article, essentially the founder, um, Harry Hurst, um, essentially announcing the departure of their core three co-founders from the team. And it raises a lot of questions uh, because they were basically, and I mentioned in last week's podcast as well, I was telling Soham, I think it's weird because the three co-founders suddenly left all of a sudden at the same time. And they say, okay, we need to start finding new leadership. So, so if you remember, I was telling you, I, I was feeling it to be really weird. And that's actually just like about a week ago. So since then, there's some new development happened. Essentially, they have a board that basically consists of mainly their co-founders. The only outside board member is Peter Ankerson, which is a general partner at Fen Capital, who himself had became VC just three years ago, according to TechCrunch. And then Hearst, who's the CEO and fellow founders, Josh Mango and Zing are the only other directors on the board. And it seems like there are people familiar with the situation has been saying that Pipe has made roughly $80 million in loans to one or several crypto mining companies mm. that has since gone out of business. And the $80 million is believed to have been completely written off said individuals familiar with the matter, quote unquote. Scott, I want to come to you first. I think some a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about founder having too much power and VCs becoming too much toxic. So what are your first thoughts? Definitely interesting how they would have gotten into that amount of lending with crypto, for sure. I think everyone rode that wave and we're going to see, again, with the great correction, especially FTX, hopefully some changes. But it's interesting. I mean, seeing the investors in the pipe, people like Shopify, Slack, right? Tribe Capital, Raptor, et cetera. It looks to have not them driving to be on the board themselves is to me a red flag anyways. So as George, you know, I'm a big fan of a company having more independent directors at the start than having friendly fire. And it doesn't mean that they're not on your side. It means that they're objective to what you're doing and there is an oversight to it. And I believe that should be mandatory even for young companies or non-public companies. It is ridiculous to have all founders on the board. Really, you should just probably have one, the CEO, whichever one that is designated, probably have general counsel, 
which generally isn't a founder, right? And then have independent board members. So as you know, Choir has myself and then we have two independent. We're going to be adding one for the investor. We're going to be adding one more independent. And that's just an amazing way to control this narrative uh, that's going on. But to have a sudden departure like that, I have to look into it more on just 80 million. That's peanuts compared to SBF. So they got lucky, right? But that's amazing to see. That's a lot of wasted wasted capital, especially yeah. if it lives by the product it preaches, because it is a necessary tool for startups, especially. Yeah. I'm surprised that they raised 200 plus million dollars without anyone on the board. What were the VCs thinking? Like, what, what happened? Just like, it's so rare for that to be happening, Scott. Has it been rare, though? We've seen hundreds of millions of dollars fly out in the last year or two for things that really didn't warrant it. Anything from A16Z's investment, right, with Adam, to the people tossing money at FTX, to things like that. So I think the good news is we're getting back into the appropriate due diligence where those valuations and that money is tied to uh, revenue and future revenue growth only, and as it should be, right? Um, these guys, probably like many, you raise a ton of money and you do it. But think about it this way. If you're a bank and you're raising capital, you could end up in a situation where I believe like Carvana has ended up, right? And Carvana, they were borrowing money at a higher rate than then they were selling cars and lending it out to the purchasers on. That's just not going to stand. So if they give it to things like crypto that didn't have that return, yeah, man, it's a house of cards. Independent, man. I'm all for it. Independent. Crazy. So um, what's your take from this like story I just broke today? I think this stems something a bit larger than from just pipe.com. I think I remember reading stories that a lot of times these like uh, startups and founders, they had friends that were at like some really good VCs, like let's say Sequoia Capital, for example. And then Sequoia Capital would put like a very low amount, like maybe like a hundred K, $250,000 into that company. But then now that startup can went around to like a lot of other places saying, hey, we have like, uh, you know, like Sequoia investing in us. And that started like bootstrapping. And you can see like that snowball effect that got, listen, I think Pipe might be one of those, seeing how like Shop mm-hmm. and a lot of these other people that invest in them didn't want to make any fight for just like going onto the board, right? I think that might be like a key indicator. And we're starting to see things like, yeah, like Pipe.com, FTX, all the stuff that's starting to maybe unravel a little bit from the lack of due diligence that was done during the COVID times. Yeah. FOMO is very real in the startup world. Mm-hmm. But like, isn't Uber full of board members? I'm just like confused. Like they raised Series A to have a board member. They raised like C to have a board member. Like it, like what happened to those days, Scott? Like it, <laughs> we just in a different time? Different time. Yeah, I think the other thing on it, though, is there's so many startups compared to 20, 30 years ago. You're kind of razor thin. I mean, how many boards can you sit on too, right? So that's mm-hmm. probably the problem. I guess sometimes the investor on the board is problematic. Let's not get it wrong. They're not exactly always helpful. You know, some are great, right? And strategic and going and some just aren't. They're just there to toss money at you. And if an investor is not going to be there to get you deals and get you traction, then they probably shouldn't be on the board. But I think always independent is. I would rather have an investor help pick an independent board member than the other way around, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And are independent members like that really that independent? I mean, what's your thoughts? Like, if they're recommended by a VC, then are they really independent? It's kind of my my thoughts. Independent enough that I guess at least they're not getting paid by the VC. How about that? Right. There's at least <laughs> a little paper between them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I guess there could be a few favors old or something like that. Yeah. Um, but 
But generally, those companies do really well. I mean, most public companies, that's how they operate. And I think we should uh, admire that. Yeah, that's great. I think it just tells a great story. I think them leaving might just signal the end of another era where, you know, founders have too much power and money has become like really abundant. I think that era has been closed again. I'm not sure when the next of that will happen. Probably not anytime soon. Um, but wow, that just means the end of the era for tech in general. So that's crazy. So Scott, um, and I, what do you want to ask about your plan of navigating all this? I think uh, Choir has seems to be doing really well despite all this. Uh, I think your team has been a really experienced operator. Uh, what's your plan as we go into you know December and 2023, uh, which is not very you know far away? Yeah, no, only weeks now, right? What a fantastic year to fly through. You know, I think for Choir, we're going to do everything possible to hit our 2023 and 2024 plan. You know, product execution, number one, an MVP that will be delivered, that is about to be delivered, number two, doesn't have to be beautiful, but functional. And then over the year, you kind of make it to something uh, that really grabs market uh, penetration. But, you know, with the team, I want to make sure that we grow to 2025, have a hundred million dollars recognized revenue potential on the table and also own the entire supply chain. So if choir recommends XYZ be done, you know, I want us to be in resilient paints. I want us to be in decarbonization for construction. I want us to be in fintech for all of those projects. I want us to be in carbon capture. So all of those things, you know, own the supply chain 100%. And so we're going to drive and hire a team to do that. But first and foremost, come Q1, we're going to be demonstrating that product. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. So on, any other questions uh, for Scott? No, I think that's on my end. Okay. Awesome, Scott. So like, I, I know I asked you, Scott, like a couple weeks ago, about your next plan for the next five years and 10 years. I, I know you just told us about short plan. Any long-term plans? As you know, I'm in love with startups, but I think the stuff choir is going to absolutely accelerate and we're going to be great there. But five, 10 years down the road, you know, I want to be on the other side of the table and continue to find founders that have that passion and really build a different type of investment firm. One that scales, one that's been built by builders, one that relies on diligence of growth and not hype and is agnostic to almost all industries as long as they're going to give return, right? But in the short term, sustainability and green technologies are going to be what everyone is focused on. So the next five years, those companies are going to go and they're going to need to find homes, right? So I think there's a big opportunity, but five to 10 years, yeah, definitely the other side of that table, build a billion dollar fund. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. And yeah, I know we're out of time for this episode. I'm really glad to have you, Scott, on to give us some updates oh, about again. about Choir. I think it's an amazing story. I think we just had a conversation a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's like things are going a lot better in such a short time. Amazing yeah. people, man. Amazing people do amazing things. Yeah. So great luck to it. Definitely be helping you guys build that as well. So really excited to see how the next few weeks pans out. So thank you so much, Scott, for hopping on. Yeah. And thanks so much, Son, for asking great questions and hopping on for this episode. Yeah. Our audiences, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>